1: Glad to have all of you with us for today's Political Rewind. Uh, It's uh, another big day in politics. I don't think there are any such thing as days that aren't big days in politics anymore. We've got a great panel here to talk with us about what's happening. We're going to shift our focus a little bit um, after a a, a great show yesterday with all of our what what Tom Faust calls the A-Team, our political science panel, talking about the implications of what happened in New Hampshire, and before I get to the panel, and in fact, uh, we we move more towards uh, things that are happening here in Georgia. I do want to follow up on one thing that uh, we discussed on yesterday's show, and that was turnout in New Hampshire. Now that 100 percent of the precincts in New Hampshire have reported in, it turns out that Democrats set a new turnout record. Um, at least 295,000 ballots were cast in the Democratic primary. Previously, it had been 288,000 in 2008 when Barack Obama was on the ballot and, and Hillary Clinton, of course. And um, so Democrats after Iowa, when they felt the turnout uh, suggested that maybe voters were not enthusiastic, got a little bit of uh, hope yesterday from the turnout That they saw in New Hampshire, although it was pointed out by some critics that uh, the turnout in some ways reflected the fact that they've added many people to the voter rolls since that 2008 election when they set the record. So for whatever it's worth, I wanted to share all that uh, with you. All right. Uh, On the panel today, it's uh, Kevin Riley Day. Thursday is here at Political Rewind. Kevin, of course, is the editor of the Atlanta (laughs) Journal-Constitution. And um, we're always glad to have the boss coming in to be on the show, Kevin.
2: It's great to be here, but Kevin Riley Day, I'm not sure that that's a good idea at all for anyone.
1: You're sitting right next to, for people watching on Facebook Live, Melita Easter's. Melita is the founder and the director of the Georgia WinList. How long has WinList been going now?
0: We celebrate our 20th anniversary a week from today with a big luncheon. Well,
1: congratulations. Um, Of course, the purpose of the WinList is, you'll tell me if I don't always say this correctly, to recruit pro-choice women to run for offices in Georgia.
0: As Democrats.
1: As Democrats. And we're going to talk a little bit about some of the recruiting you've been doing During the show today, Um, another uh, panelist today who has also been very active over the years in state politics. And like you, Melita, uh, on his side of the aisle, Leo Smith, active in uh, in in working on turnout efforts and uh, looking at mobilizing Republicans in the state of Georgia. Leo Smith is uh, here with us today. Leo, tell us about just briefly about your company now.
3: Oh, well, Engage Futures uh, Group is a company I started years ago. I said I was going to get more policy-focused, more political infrastructure-focused. It's focused on engaging people across difference in public affairs and government affairs. And uh, and I'm actually I'm working with uh, the Secretary of State right now, advising him on voter education and getting people out to learn about the new machines. And engagement. we
1: will talk a little bit about that effort later in the show today, because, in fact, there are many people out there who are concerned about how these new voter machines are going to work, whether. uh, whether they will work, whether people will know how to use them. We'll talk about that a bit. It's it's an interesting effort. Joel Alvarado is back with us today as well. Uh, Joel is with uh, Ohio River South, a consulting firm. You do government uh, affairs work. You do some political consulting at the firm. And Ohio River South um, is, in fact, working on the Michael Bloomberg campaign in Georgia, Howard Franklin, a frequent panelist and and, uh, uh, who oversees the company, is involved with that. You personally, because we're going to talk about Bloomberg a bit today, you yourself are not working on the Bloomberg effort here in Georgia. You've got other fish to fry, so to speak, right? Yes, I have plenty of fish to fry. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, All right. And good morning. But in the interest of transparency, as we begin this first conversation today, we should say that Ohio River South is involved – with the uh, bloomberg campaign and that that may be a good thing so we'll see how that works out today all right so kevin Riley, let's talk about that um yesterday lucy mcbath became one of three african american members of the u.s house to endorse michael bloomberg um it's not surprising in many ways that she endorsed him Bloomberg was very helpful in promoting her campaign. He contributed a lot of money to her efforts at gun safety. He promoted the gun safety issue while she was running against Karen Handel and won her first term. And uh, here's what Macbeth said when she endorsed him. She said, I first met Mike when I was searching for ways to fight against the dangerous gun laws that ripped my son from my life. Her son, of course, was killed in a gun incident. Mike gave grieving mothers like me ways to stand up and fight back. Nobody running for president has done more for gun violence prevention than Mike. One quick note about that. There have been some conservatives on social media who've attacked Lucy McBath by saying that if her son hadn't been out running around basically with gangs, he wouldn't have been killed. And the sad reality is, her son was killed in an incident in which a motorist, upset about the noise, the, the music coming from the car next to him, shot into the car and killed her son. I just want to make that point. But anyhow, so McBath's all for her boomer.
2: Right. I mean, again, as you you said, I don't think there's any big surprise there at all, given uh, Representative McBath's history and, you know, anyone who's heard her talk with the passion that she has around this gun issue. Uh, But I do think it's a little bit tricky because um, in the end, uh, I don't think she— or Bloomberg want guns necessarily completely front and center as they go forward in these campaigns. I mean, we know that the biggest thing that worked uh, for uh, Democrats in those midterms was health care and and other issues. So I, I do think, again, not a surprise. She's had a relationship with them for a long time, but- the gun's probably not, not the issue everyone wants well, to talk well, about. Well,
1: Melita, of course, one of the things we should say is that in her run against Handel, when she won the seat, McBath certainly talked gun safety, but Kevin's right. She act, she showcased uh, health care issues in a much bigger way, and many people think that had more to do with her victory than gun safety.
0: Well, she talked about breast cancer yep, and and yep. Medicaid expansion. The other thing is that, that even though the gun issue brought Lucy McBath to politics, she has grown in the wide range of issues she can talk about. And I think the other thing is that Bloomberg probably learned a lot about black culture from the grieving mothers like Lucy McBath. Mm. Mm. as he worked mm. with them to develop strategies for gun safety. And his work in funding the whole gun safety movement, a third of their funding for every town for and, and mom's demand, came from Bloomberg at the <laughs> beginning. And so I think that shows his evolution in his thought process about all the gun safety issues.
1: So Bloomberg did, in fact, put $4.5 million into that Macbeth effort, um, you know, as a, as a, uh, a third-party uh, a contributor, a- again, largely around uh, gun issues. Uh, and, and, Leo, uh, let's talk about the fact that there are some people who have suggested that Bloomberg – is Bloomberg buying endorsements uh, – from uh, some members of Congress. He was in Chattanooga yesterday. I wanna play what he said about that and then get you and Joel uh, to respond to it. So here's a question he got during a news conference about the endorsements he got from the three African-American members of Congress, and again, including Lucy McBeth. You've unveiled a lot of different
4: endorsements, uh, three members of the Congressional Black Caucus just today. Um, have you or anyone from your campaign ever give, given any type of financial incentive for an endorsement?
5: Of course not, but we have supported uh, elected officials around this country uh, for a long time. I've been doing it for years. I want better government. They need money to run, and I'm pleased to do that. I, if you remember, um, paid for some ads that flipped the house, 21 seats, uh, people who were good on guns and good on the environment.
1: Uh, We cut off the last part of that because it was uh, something I could mention, which is he said, look, it was uh, in part, that's one of the reasons that the Democrats took the House and were able to launch the impeachment uh, against President Trump. Your response, Leo?
3: Well, I think that is really important to note that when... In in Macbeth's case, she talked about safety, and that's one issue. And there's a lot of Republicans concerned about safety. But what Bloomberg brings to this whole picture and his partnership with her now brings an element of confiscation, which... When, when Republicans are going to message that, Bloomberg is now going to make manifest a confiscation movement, like in Virginia with the ban on assault know, I hate to interrupt you, but
2: could you explain confiscation? Because I know we're familiar with that term, but well, I'm not well, sure I'll, listeners I'll, I'll necessarily— I'll explain
3: it from the sense of what Bloomberg tries to justify throwing, you know, 700,000 um, boys of color up against walls. He justified it as part a confiscation project that they had to get guns <clears> off the streets. And he, in his own words, said that just through that intimidation, they're more likely to leave their guns at home. So in his mind, he was strategizing on how to deal with this this, this gun problem. And, and so so with those mamas that you're talking about who was wailing about the violence in the street and death in the street, there, there's some sensitivity and nuance about that. But Georgians will look at such an intrusion as a big, big well, difference in right.
1: safety. So Joel, I want to bring you into the conversation, but I also want to point out what, something about what Leo just said. In fact, It is uh, true that uh, Bloomberg was aligned with uh, Virginia Governor Ralph Northam when he was trying to do gun safety measures in the Virginia legislature, but, but Bloomberg said this about that. He said... He has no that Northam rather said no plan to confiscate guns or cut electricity to gun owners who refuse to give up the guns. And and Bloomberg then said, quote, nobody's trying to take away anybody's handguns or rifles or shotguns. What we're trying to do is have sensible gun regulations. That's debatable. And Leo is suggesting Republicans will push as hard as they can toward confiscation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we can already hear how that's going to play out politically. Well, you know, welcome to the world of 2020 politics. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but I, I want to
4: echo what Melita was saying and that, for me, this whole conversation comes down to two words, contrition and action. Does the individual who, who committed the act show contrition for the act they committed? And... And did they follow up with concrete action in order to address the issues that they're talking about? So for instance, stop and first look, you know I'm born and raised in New York City, Brooklyn, New York. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're in New and York And as you boy. can tell I'm and as you can tell that I'm one of those individuals who would have been targeted, right? But also at the same time I'm one of those individuals that would have been targeted by red dogs here in Atlanta. So this issue of, of police and their actions towards people of color is a national issue, a national phenomenon
1: just, just located in New York. All right. Now, but Kevin, what, what, let me let me set this up, Lita, and then you get in, too. Uh, but let me set it up because because what Joel's done is pointed us to the next part of this conversation, which is Bloomberg, who is being uh, 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 he's under fire. Excuse the expression right now. Uh, because a tape was leaked of him talking in 2015, uh, making a speech in which he talked in very, I thought, rather harsh, a harsh manner about why stop and frisk was um, being used in, in New York. Kevin, let me play the sound and then then everybody get into the conversation. It's a little hard to hear this, but but I think you'll be able to make out what Bloomberg says about stop and frisk.
5: 95% of your murders and murderers and murder victims fit one of You can just take the description Xerox it and pass it out to all the cops. They are male, minorities, 15, 25. That's true in New York. It's true in virtually every city. If you want to spend the money a lot of cops in the street, put those cops where the crime is which in the minority neighborhoods. So this is one of the unintended consequences is people say, oh my God, you are arresting kids from marijuana. They're all minorities. Yes, that's true. Why? Because we put all the cops in the minority. Neighborhoods.
1: Yes, that's true. Why do we do it? Because that's where all the crime is. All right, so it's very difficult to hear it, but I wanted you to hear his voice. Here is part of what that transcript is. He said this was at an Aspen Institute event. It's a very respectable uh, event, obviously. of your murders and murderers and murder victims fit one M.O. You can take the description and Xerox it and pass it out to all the cops. They are male minorities, 15 to 25. That's true in New York. That's true in virtually every city in America. And that's where the real crime is. You've got to get guns out of the hands of the people that are getting killed, people say, oh, my God, you're arresting kids for marijuana who are all minorities. Yes, that's true. Why? Because we put all the cops in the minority neighborhoods. Yes, that's true. Why do we do it? Because that's where all the crime is. And the way you should get the guns out of the kids' hands is throw them up against the wall and frisk them.
2: Bill, I, I, just mm-hmm. as a quick aside, this whole segment seems to be implying that a presidential candidate, can uh, a tape, an audio tape can come out (laughs) <laughs> that where that candidate says something completely inappropriate and that somehow that will hurt his campaign.
3: Yeah, I don't believe a, that. I think that's, that's, a a a new, that's a new idea. I don't I believe d- that. I but, think that's a
2: deflection. But, but to get right at it.
3: To get, to get and to right make it plain, it did hurt Donald Trump's campaign. <laughs> yeah. anyway, it did hurt. Him. He would have won by a lot more if it weren't for those things. <laughs> well, I, I'm just
1: saying. <laughs> uh, uh, Look, but, it's hard to argue, Kevin, that that is an offensive way to describe Uh, As the mayor of a city, how your police ought to treat citizens of your own city.
2: Yeah, I think without question, and I think we're going to hear that tape over and over, and and I'm sure there will be people people will find a way to enhance it so that it's a little bit easier to understand and hear his voice. Uh, and, and I, I mean, I don't think it's a mistake that he has sought these endorsements from African-American members of Congress in this situation. Well, the
1: timing was pretty I mean, important if, to him, if, actually. If he's going to counter
2: that tape, how valuable would Lucy McBath be to M- do that? Melita?
0: But I also think that you have to look at subsequent statements the mayor made saying – that he came to disagree with that policy and move beyond that policy. And he actually apologized for that policy on numerous occasions, even before he announced his presidential bid. So, and I think that women like Lucy McBath helped him come to realize the error of the sentiments he expressed in 2015 at the Aspen Institute. And redemption is a part of both politics and religion. Amen. And I believe that... It says the chorus. (laughs) It says the choir. The voters (laughs) are willing to look at where you are now rather than necessarily where you have been.
1: All right, Joel, I know you really want to get into this. Yeah, because... Kevin alluded to it.
4: It's so easy to chop up, you know, small segments of a person's life and then try to have it define the totality of their life, right? And let me just give you more context of Mayor Bloomberg. He's the same individual who also opened the Center for Economic Opportunity, to deal with systemic issues, dealing with poverty in in there. He also opened up the young men's initiative and to, that really focused on people of color, young people of color. Um and then also too, uh, let's not let's not forget the Greenwood initiative that he's pushing, where he did at Tulsa, Oklahoma, acknowledging the historical wrongs that have occurred to African Americans and, and the destruction of black uh, the destruction of of Black Wall Street. And his willingness to invest to ensure that there's equity and opportunity for all people. Oh, okay,
3: it sounds Gene. like he's talking about Dr. Donald Trump well, right there. Well, <laughs> I, I
1: mean, I, <laughs> I, 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 <laughs> I, come not Donald my
2: mind. Trump. His <laughs> right. similarities <laughs> are striking. Wait, I, I,
1: let's let, let me. I want to play some more sound for y'all. Uh, Melita makes a point that redemption is a powerful force. It's something that we all believe in—forgiveness and and redemption—in this country. I think. Uh, Bloomberg has on a number of occasions said he regrets uh, stop and frisk. He didn't really back down on stop and frisk until there was a federal lawsuit challenging the constitutionality. Thank you. Thank you, Bill. Nevertheless, here he was again in Chattanooga yesterday. This is going to be a somewhat longer soundbite, but I think it's important to hear the questions that he was asked by reporters and to listen to Bloomberg struggling to try to say something about the policy. And then I want you all to respond to it.
5: Mr. Mayor, why did you say what you said in that 2015 speech? Um, I don't think those words reflect what uh, how I led the most diverse city in the nation. And uh, I apologized for the uh, practice and the pain that it caused, but why uh, did you say it? It was uh, five years ago, and um, you know, it's just not the way that I think, and it does not the way it doesn't reflect what I do every day. I led the most populous, largest city in the United States, and got reelected three times. The public seemed to like what I do. Uh, yeah, back to the the 2015 comments. So you have uh, apologized for. Using and promoting the yeah. policy of stop and frisk, but those comments on that audio, you know, they're they're more than just talking about stop and. I mean, they're pretty derogatory comments about African Americans and the neighborhoods that they live in. So beyond Look, the policy, I, those do you apologize for those, those remarks? Words don't reflect the way that I've governed, or the way that I run my company, or the way that I live. Um, and um, I've led the most diverse city in the country. And the public there re-elected me and re-elected me uh, uh, two other times. So I think uh, they're pretty happy but with it. But do you it? apologize well, for you saying you those said words? Said no, I, I, I had to... You you go, miss, you we, we had a question. I'm trying to be fair to everybody.
1: So, uh, Leo, Joel, both of you have been involved in political campaigns, advising candidates. Uh, how would you grade Bloomberg yesterday in terms of his ability to come up with... He didn't. It felt to me like he hadn't thought through it that he was going to be confronted with it. He wasn't the ready grade? for
3: it. He had to know that he was going to be confronted, but he wasn't ready because it's a very tough issue. Look, I want to help him out a little bit, okay? Because being Do a you mayor, really come on? I do really you do really? because okay. because because it hurts. I mean, I'm a guy who's been stopped and frisked. I am a guy who in Beaver Township, out in Pennsylvania, Ohio, wherever I was, it was such an emotional time. I was stopped for four hours by police because they said my car looks stolen, okay? So this issue is very real. I have a brown-skinned son who is larger than normal. He's 12 years old, and he's 5'7", and so I introduce him to the police all the time. I've served and helped with Cobb County Police as much as I can because I want to make sure that they are friends and not foes. But being a mayor is tough, and Bloomberg was being fed a lot of data And my mama used to say, you can be right, but dead right. And here's what we need to understand about leading and governance, that sometimes you're trying to do something that's right for the crying grandmothers and the people from New York to Savannah who are concerned about crime. And so you do something, but you don't think about the larger implications. This is what I'm saying for Bloomberg. Now, he's trying to describe this and justify this. But really what he should say is, I was wrong I hurt people and I need to fix it. So when we say that people are contrite, is one thing to say he may be in, he may be heard about it now that he's on he's in the limelight and he's talking about it, but he spent millions and millions and millions of dollars on advertising for his political campaign. He's spending millions of dollars buying access to gates into the black community and black hearts. He's buying spokespeople and surrogates so that he can change this image. He could just as easily go to those 700,000 people thrown against the wall. The data is there, find out who they were, 90% of them innocent, and do something to repair that. That does not require a political campaign. That requires complete soul.
1: So first of all, thank you for your being so candid. I really appreciate your sharing uh, your personal thoughts and your, your experiences with us. Um, Kevin, and then I know Melita and Joel, you both are eager to jump in. One of the things that is interesting about this tape coming at this moment is that given what happened in Iowa, given what's happening in New Hampshire, where Bernie Sanders appears to be the front runner and … could possibly be on his way to winning the nomination against the wishes of more moderate Democrats. Suddenly people are looking – Democrats are looking to Bloomberg and saying, oh, my goodness, we would have never thought this, but maybe he's going to be our salvation at moving forward as a moderate Democrat with money. And now this comes along. So I kind of almost hear Democrats thinking, oh, my God, this is – we don't need this right
3: now.
2: Well, yeah. I mean I think it does show – I mean look at how long we've been talking about Bloomberg. And he he wasn't in, in either of those races in Iowa or New Hampshire because I do think it's true that Democrats uh, – no one – it seems completely comfortable with where that their their choices are right now bloomberg always said he was going to wait basically till super tuesday so you we probably could have predicted that this stuff would start happening there'll probably be more too i mean if he's a real threat then of course there's going to be a counter to that
3: Melita,
1: you too have worked with candidates for office. What kind of grade do you give him? And the, you know, Leo makes a great point. His TV spots, which he spent multi-millions on, are terrific. He didn't say they're terrific, but we all agree, I they think. They are really amazing. Good. Yeah. And, but and now his, he's dealing with a spontaneous his situation. His team
0: is doing an amazing job of trolling Donald Trump. What his team perhaps has not done, and it's the hardest thing for any team to do, and that is look your candidate in the eye and say, this was a mess in the past, you've got to do this. It's real hard to look at the man in charge who's paying your salary or the woman in charge when it's a woman candidate and tell them that something about them is wrong or something they have done is wrong. That's the hardest thing for any candidate or campaign to do. Yeah. The other thing that you, you mentioned, the data, you know, there's there's a lot of data about crime. And for everybody who argued that all of the crime was in the inner city, there are other sets of data that say different things right. And so data always depends on who's given it to you and how they collected it. Mm-hmm. And and so there are a lot of misconceptions out there about where crime originates and, and who's committing it and whether young black kids carry more drugs than young white kids. Right. Because – it's just that the young, white kids haven't been stopped and frisked and arrested. Yeah, I, well, Bernie right. Or Car- N-
3: Newton or, and, you know, so so using the data to say, I want to stop, and sorry, Bill, but using the data to say, I want to stop crime, right? But you also have to then do equal application of the data. Could you profile the average shooter in a school shooting? What would that it, shooter look It's not a young like? black man. Right. right, right. And do you Mr. Bloomberg, did you go after them?
1: So, uh, so that's a question let me, that has to be answered. Let me turn the page just a little on this, Joel. President Trump, uh, very quickly after the tape was released, uh, uh, sent out. He tweeted out "racist" in all capital letters. <laughs> he he had he pulled the. T- it was interesting. I wonder who it was in the White House right. who went to him and said, "Let's take that tweet down, Mr. President." Is that the first time that's happened? Right. All his tweets. Is that like a precedent that's been set?
4: I, I, no, a t- he's taken he's down that out. Tweets. He's tweets. Taken down okay, But I find that extremely humorous and also sad and opportunist, right? You're going to call Bloomberg a racist, but you're the same individual when you started your campaign. People who look like me, you, paint, you otherized us and made us into rapists and drug dealers and so on and so forth. You have little children that could be my, my son or, or daughter in concentration camps on the border. Right. You have families when the, when a the wave of, of, of migrants, of immigrants were going to come. You said they were going to steal people's houses. OK, Alfonso Curial, who's a state who's a federal judge, you said that he couldn't be impartial on a on a judicial ruling because he was Mexican. But yet you're going to call Bloomberg a racist. I'm sorry. Right. I, that's incredible. I got to get
1: to a break. Let's uh, before we go to the break. Uh, uh, Count Joel Alvarado is not uh, likely to vote for President Trump for real election <laughs> <laughs> uh, Let's do this. Let's get a break out of the way, and we'll be back with more on Political Rewind. We're back on Political Rewind. Um, we've got a good panel in here today, that's for sure. Uh, Leo Smith, Joel Alvarado, Melita Easters, and Kevin Riley all joining us for the show today. You know what? Um, we're going to We've got some interesting endorsements that we've just seen in Senate races, and I want to talk about those in a minute. But it just occurred to me during the break that we've got two people here who are really actively involved in, um, in, in projects for the 2020 elections. And I, I think we should at least talk for a couple of minutes about the work that you're doing before uh, we take this to other issues in the state of Georgia. Melita, you continue to recruit women, pro-choice, Democratic women, primarily to run for legislative seats. Right. Uh, And you've just had a news conference the other day at which you announced what?
0: We announced the rest of our 20 for 2020, 20 pre-qualifying endorsements of women that we believe can either protect and keep the five um, seats that they won last time, seven seats, then um, five women who ran last time, came close, but need a little bit of extra help this year to push them over the edge to flip seats. For example, Louisa Wakeman came with an 818 votes of defeating Sharon Cooper. Now, George has been at the bottom of the pile for maternal mortality for a long time. But when we came so close to defeating the chair of the House Health Committee, all of a sudden there were hearings on this maternal mortality issue. So that's the kind of thing that a persistent Democratic woman can do to put the fear of God in a Republican who's been doing nothing on an issue. Then we've got eight new face women, and they're extraordinary. One is Kim Jackson, the Episcopal priest for the Church on the Common Ground, whose whole ministry is the homeless in Atlanta. And she can talk about the shredded social safety net that the governor's budget um, presents for consideration. And we have a woman, two women with PhDs. One, a medical doctor, who also added to her medical degree a master's degree of public health from Columbia. And she can talk about Medicaid expansion in a way that nobody else can. They're just amazingly smart, brilliant women.
1: So let me let me back you up a step. Uh, you point out that you believe that uh, uh, your efforts uh, to... Uh, uh, elevate women uh, to legislative seats had some impact on Sharon Cooper jumping on maternal mortality, almost almost costing her her seat before she embraced embraces issue. But you're not complaining that she's embracing. The no, issue. I'm not she's complaining. Become a, she's become a fierce advocate for doing something about this.
0: Well, and we're glad to see it. But, but that's but so our make sure our women that. don't think she went quite far enough.
1: OK, okay. And, and
0: that'll be a, an issue on the campaign trail.
1: All right, so um, we're going to watch how all of that unfolds, especially when we're in the middle of the year, where we expect a, a, a ruling from the United States Supreme Court before year's end on on one or more of the uh, outlaw bills that are the laws that have all but outlawed abortion in Alabama, here in Georgia, Ohio. Uh, so it's going to be interesting to see how. Uh, pro-choice candidates fair in that election. You want to jump in, yeah, I just want to
4: say I just want
1: to publicly
4: uh, commend um, Georgia
1: Winlist and your work you.
4: because I you know I work at the Capitol a lot. And the the activity, the power, the leadership that many of the women who have come through Georgia Win that they're now I mean it just speaks about um, your ability to really identify, support, and empower women in Georgia to to pick up the mantle for progressive policy here in the state. And so I just want to let you so, know that I see it. it and, so, because,
1: mm-hmm. I always, because I always think that it's important on this show uh, to balance positions, you know, uh, clearly there are conservative women who are very glad the state has virtually outlawed abortion and could very well turn out to vote in favor Of legislators re-electing legislators who supported that measure, we know there is those there are Molina is fighting against those conservatives.
3: Well, I mean, women are not a mon- monolith, right? That women, is true. Right. Exactly. Women are free-thinking people who have their own mind and the own ba- their own the the banners that they want to choose to support. And yes, conservative women um, have been very much pro-life, and I think that the discussion about life and the value of life is what we've been talking about from the beginning of this balance and crime and all things that support Kevin, life.
1: Kevin, as we approach uh, as we approach uh, ruling on on the uh, on the, whether it's Alabama, Georgia, Ohio, whatever. This could become the biggest story the state will be uh, watching unfold I think as the election approaches
2: oh I agree and and as uh, Leo points out I mean women aren't a monolith there are women on both on both sides of, of that equation so therefore even something you know as when those rulings come out will have a big it'll be a of an earthquake in right. the state.
1: Well, I wanted to give you a chance, Melita, because you. you've been a driving force in getting in in, in recruiting candidates for, for many years. And I think our listeners need to hear that. Leo Smith, you uh, have also been involved as a political consultant, as somebody who's recruited candidates on the Republican side, but now you've turned your attention. Uh, to the issue of voter training, as you or, or of, as training individuals on the new voting machines, and I assume that includes poll workers, yes, uh, yes. citizens, and how to use the machines. Um, how, given that you're involved in that effort right now, and that the Secretary of State has uh, brought you in to do that, how confident are you about the, these machines and the ability their ability to Uh, give us accurate uh, results.
3: Through a vast array of partners all over the state, we are now engaging uh, in communities from, uh, you know, uh, rotary clubs to, you know, some, you know, nonpartisan political efforts and civic uh, engagement organizations all over the state. And it's been astounding how pleased people are to be able to both, Um, know that these new machines allowed them to vote, allowed them to have a digital footprint of their vote that's secure and also allows them to have a paper ballot in their hands with their choices listed out in writing. And I know we had Elena Parent on a couple weeks ago and I think she said that there was no paper ballot that listed the choices. No. So even we did a legislative training session at the Gold Dome last week to make sure even legislators who didn't know have full information could come and touch the machines. All right. Uh, So we're doing this all over over the state we've got great partners from the Martin Luther King Center for Nonviolent Social Change, helping us do voter education and make sure that this fear that people have about these machines is unwarranted. Hey, so <laughs> Leo it's safe
2: to I mean it's accurate to say your effort, your efforts along those lines are nonpartisan. Is Absolutely that, okay, and yeah.
3: completely. I mean, the list of partners that we have, I mean, I, I don't want to take up too much time, but the Center for Election Innovation and Research, for instance, and that the U.S. Election Assistance Commission, the Department of Homeland Security, bipartisan task But people, people who are out force, there I mean, listening,
2: if they right. want to either get involved or just kind of they themselves experience the training, is it an easy thing to do? Or Absolutely. How, how We're looking
3: for voting ambassadors. We're looking for people to come so out. So where do I go to find them. that out? SecureVoteGeorgia.com. Okay. SecureVoteGeorgia.com. Okay. So, Georgia. you know, com. it's
1: interesting you mentioned that, Kevin because I don't want to walk into my polling place on March 24th and be faced with these new machines without any idea of what the heck I'm doing. I mean, I'm, I've watched you handle your iPad on the show, and I think <laughs> your fears are well-founded. I, I, uh, I, I said this to Leo before we went on the air. When, when Kathy Cox was Secretary of State and introduced the machines that have now been phased out, I remember a very focused effort at media, uh, training, I was as a political reporter with with many of my friends and colleagues, some of them from the AJC Kevin, brought into the Secretary of State's office to learn how these machines work, given chances to to handle the machines, put them on TV, show them. I'm certainly hoping we're going to have that opportunity, whether it's through Leo's group or other people at the Secretary of State's office. Yes, Malita.
0: Leo, what about the concerns, particularly in rural areas or smaller communities, about the fact that those screens are so large, the poll workers from across the room and the poll observers can see how someone's voting and that these new machines... Do not protect the secrecy of your vote.
3: Um, I think that the fact that we have been doing demonstrations is why that concern might have come up, because when we do the demonstrations, we don't set it up with the screen protectors in the booth sort of setup that people are used to. So that same booth protection um, will be applied so that from right to left and then the body standing in front of the screen, no one will be able right, to see well, that's the
1: That's good screens. to know. I hope that that's certainly the case. Um, all right. Thank you both, Uh, because I think it's important our listeners understand uh, the way in which you're involved as 2020 moves forward. Joel, I want to start you on this one. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. So Doug Collins was endorsed yesterday in his Uh bid for Senate seat number two by former Arkansas Governor Mike Huckabee, who's been a darling of conservative Republicans for many, many years. I want to— Talk about that, but before we do, I think this is fascinating, and it says something about exactly what happens with uh, with the internet these days. I went to Google. Mike Huckabee endorses Doug Collins because I wanted to be able to read a quote from what, Huck- what Huckabee had to say. You know what the first thing is on that uh, on that search return? DC Doug Collins. He needs to stop the spending, it is an ad from Club for Growth, which I assume paid for that position at the top of the search results Just a a small matter, Joel, but it tells us something about the power of the Internet in political campaigns. (laughs) Absolutely. And and the power of Google search, right? Yeah,
4: yeah. (laughs) Perhaps the idea there's a little too much power there. Right. I think that's another episode. Um, I would say this, though. Uh, One (laughs) is, you know, we talked about in other – in past uh, uh, political rewind shows about this – Fracturing this ideological fracturing within the uh, Republican Party. And so I'm, I'm not the expert to speak on it. I'll allow Mr. Smith to have his, his say on that. But what I will say is that I, I too, looked at um, what Huckabee said, Huckabee said uh, Governor Huckabee said, and he indicated that Collins was representing conservative values. Now, I wasn't a political science major at Morehouse. I was history major. But for me, the grand old party they dealt with um, they fiscal prudence, they dealt with uh, values based on their Christian faiths, and they dealt with um, respect for democratic institutions and the rule of law. And I'm trying to understand uh, these past three years, have all three been, uh, has happened in, in the federal government? I think, there's, I think the data will show it's otherwise. So, I, you know, my concern is that what is it that you
1: are championing and what is it that you intend on continuing to do? All right, so fair enough. Uh, but, uh, Kevin, here's, what, here's just part of the, the statement from Huckabee. Uh, talking about Doug Collins, he unflinchingly has stood up to the Trump hating Democrats in the House and the Trump hating media. Well, this is, he made this statement to one of your people at the AJC, Yeah, we, we contacted him and asked uh, for a statement. Very enterprising. Doug didn't become pro-life to be elected, a shot at Kelly Leffler, obviously. His commitment to the worth and dignity of every human life is not a political calculation, but a deep spiritual conviction. His ability to articulate a heartfelt conservative position, Joel, with uncanny clarity impressed me from the first time I heard him
2: well, speak. Well, you know, you've, people who listen to the show have heard this from me before, I mean, uh, many of us know Representative Collins or had chances to interact with him, and I I don't think he's going away. I mean, I would not – I've never run for office, never planned to, never want to. I would not want to run against him. It's that simple. (laughs) I think he's out there, and he's going to fight to the end. And I know there's this big question about what the president will do, and I think this is a sign of it. I mean, I think that Doug Collins wants to be senator. And he, he was disappointed that the governor didn't appoint him, but that has not changed his mind about being senator.
1: So, uh, Leo, it, it, you can comment on that, but let me add one more layer to it. A, a day before Huckabee endorsed Collins, Newt Gingrich endorsed Kelly Loeffler and said, Kelly Loeffler is exactly the type of political outsider we need in Washington. As a conservative businesswoman and strong supporter of President Trump, Kelly has proven record of creating jobs and opportunities for Georgians. I'm proud to endorse Kelly Loeffler for the U.S. Senate. I've got to say, if you try to compare, based on something Kevin said, where Mike Huckabee stands with President Trump and where Newt Gingrich stands with President Trump, I go with Newt perhaps being closer in alignment with the president, and maybe we should read something into his endorsement of Loeffler.
3: Yeah, it's, all, it's a very interesting thing, and I hate seeing this go on like many Republicans who care about Republican principles. And let me say that Kelly Loeffler, Senator Loeffler was my invited guest with the King Center. I sent her the letter to come and speak at Ebenezer for the King Commemorative Service, and I'm thankful for her for showing up um, and standing in the gap. Um, and likewise, when I held a, 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 an event in Washington, D.C. for President Trump's first inauguration. Um, Back when and, you were still a Trumper, was, you when become when, an well, anti-Trumper. I was a party guy. I, I was working well, no, as Well, no, no, I'm not complaining. You know, I'm right, just saying yeah, people yeah. should
1: know you have moved away from I'm President I'm a Trump, Trump
3: policy guy right now. I'm a Trump policy guy. <laughs> so I held this, <laughs> this event, and so Collins was—you know, he was the only— um, congressional delegate delegation member that supported this luncheon uh, minority engagement voter engagement mm-hmm. luncheon that I had in Washington DC. He came over he sent people. this guy is really supportive. Of inclusive engagement in the party, even though he didn't have to be, and that's what's so much more impressive to me because his voter base—it doesn't really matter whether he does inclusion politics. Um, so, so I, I like him, okay? And I think when I talk to Georgia legislators who knew him when he was a state legislator, they like him. Melania you're down there, so, so, I, so you know well, so, how popular. So here's what I want to say, though, and because I don't want this to be missed. What is what is a Republican? What is a Democrat? Nobody really. On both sides, mm-hmm. that argument is being had right now. But we have to be careful, because who's messaging about what these people are? This is Hollywood and politics. You know, they say politics <laughs> right. is people. Ho- you know, politics is is Hollywood for ugly people right. or something like that. <laughs> so mo- don't I- believe the PACs, okay? Don't believe the PACs. Believe what you know.
1: All right. Well, I, I want to get you in your before our break, please. Well,
3: I think it'll be
0: very interesting now that the... New judicial building named for Governor Deal has been opened, and most of the the celebrations around that have taken place. It will be very interesting to see if Governor Deal decides to endorse in this race and where he will come down, because Collins is from his neck of the woods. That's right. True. Gainesville. And, mm-hmm. and, and now that those festivities which took him, put him on the, the platform with the current governor, will he now feel the freedom to endorse in that race. That
1: really, will, That's really interesting. Yes. Maybe Kevin that... can
0: send his reporters after the governor. <laughs> All
1: right. I've got to get, get our final break out of the show. Let's do it right now. <laughs> Uh, Melita Easter has just talked about endorsements for Republican candidates for Senate uh, in Senate race number two, Senate race number one. We've talked in sh- on the show a bit recently, especially, and I think it was Tamar Hallerman the other day when it came up. We, She said, I feel almost sorry for these uh, uh, candidates who are running against <laughs> David Perdue because nobody is talking about them. Because of impeachment, uh, because of Senate race number two. But it's important to point out that uh, one of those candidates, Teresa Tomlinson, uh, got an endorsement from Democracy for America, which is a pretty important national uh, progressive organization. Mm -hmm. They stood by Stacey Abrams early in her campaign. Um, And it's really kind of the first sign we've seen. I mean, she's got good competition in that uh, race with uh, John Ossoff, Sarah Amico. But for Tomlinson to get their endorsement, it's kind of – she steps out just a little bit in terms of attention, I think. Because
0: That's true. That. And, and, but that is a highly competitive race. Um, they are all good candidates. And I, I think it – everybody's waiting to see when when and if the DSCC will even jump in, and they probably won't, mm-hmm. even though they jumped in for Warnock early. Um, Emily's List hasn't jumped in, even though there are two women candidates. So there are a lot of national groups that have just held their powder waiting for the primary to see what happens. Have you stayed out of that race? I don't know we, where you are We in that are race. a state-based legislative pack. We are not a federal pack. We've stayed out of that race. I'm talking about
1: Melita Easters as an individual.
0: Melita Easters keeps her mouth shut because <laughs> I, don't, when I don't. Spoken like a
1: two-operative.
4: When my,
0: when my donors back more than one candidate in a federal race and my pack is not a federal pack, I keep my mouth shut because I don't want to make any of my donors (laughs) mad. Speaking of
2: speaking of money though, does that (laughs) endorsement help I mean, it, from a money perspective, is that going to matter?
0: It might loosen up some of the national money that's been hard for any of those three to, to raise.
2: I mean, if you're outside Georgia, you, you haven't heard anything about those Democrats. I imagine, you know, the national money that everyone's been able to get well, their hands all, on would be hard to get, right? They've
0: all made their trips to New York and D.C. and L.A. I don't know that they've been as successful as they hoped. I mean, I personally happen to know about a party that Teresa had in Georgetown because a friend of mine hosted it. But um, they they all have had some difficulty in raising the national money that once I believe there is a nominee for that seat will come to the person who is that nominee. Joe, we
1: should point out Democracy for America also endorsed Raphael Warnock for Senate race number two, which which adds to a growing list of people who have uh, supported him but I will say something interesting uh, in the last week two of our democratic panelists most recently buddy darden have both said and I can frankly I just can't remember who the other one was important people in the party said well we're holding out we're not ready to endorse him yet cuz we want to see what michael thurmond is going to do. Uh, There's a feeling among some Democrats that Thurman is more moderate and maybe has more of an opportunity to take that on. But in the meantime, Mayor Bottoms has also said that, correct? And Warnock, yeah. yeah, And Warnock is just, you know, picking up uh, support left and right. Right. And so, first of all, I, I went to the
4: Democracy for America website just to just to get an idea. And if you look at the, the, the faces and the names of the people that are part of that community, I mean, there's the national stars, many of them are the national stars, either in their state or in the, uh, or in, throughout the country, and the names that are highly recognizable. So for Warnock and Tomlinson to be part of that community speaks volumes. Yeah. And, and I think that Melita's right that it's always hard for who's going to start the process of support but once it starts, then it starts moving. The train starts moving, and I think that this particular endorsement is going to be the the what we need, the catalyst for other national and statewide organizations and individuals to start realizing okay. we have two viable candidates that can pick up where where, where Democrats can pick up two seats um, and flip, and hopefully flip the Senate. Well, Whoa, that's a that, that prediction. A makes...
0: uh,
2: Leo's <laughs> kind of jump in here. Well,
0: that makes though the the.
4: A Georgia, a <laughs>
0: true battleground state mm-hmm. in more than just our own imagination. and Which is where it's been
2: so far, right? It's
0: been in our imagination yeah. in past years. But the fact that there are 750,000 newly registered voters and that those voters tend towards demographics.
1: They're younger. They're younger minorities. and of color. Mm-hmm.
0: And that creates in Georgia the Republican Rubicon that even their gerrymandered districts cannot save them from. All right.
1: Before we're out of time, Melita's right. We talked about this extensively yesterday on the show, the new demographics of the registrations, but they got to vote, Leo, and Democrats have had a hard time. In Stacey Abrams' case, they made it work. Mm-hmm. But in 2020, we don't know if any of those younger people yeah. are going to show up at the polls or not.
3: And before they can vote, they've got to be registered, and Georgia does automatic registration of voters. Well, these are, these are registration numbers. We've got 750,000 new voters, which means that, obviously, Georgia is not stopping people from becoming voters in, in the state. Because right. we but, Leo, just part heard of that. what you're saying I, is so because people
2: are registered automatically, right. so the next they may not be engaged. Age, Next right. step
3: is decreasing apathy, right? So mm-hmm. there sure. needs to be smart work, smart work, non-political work on decreasing apathy. Three, the King Center is concerned two, about that, so it's the Secretary one. of State.
1: Leo, we're out of time. <laughs> you managed to get the last word uh, on the show today. Uh, <laughs> Good work. So uh, Leo, Joel Alvarado, Kevin Riley, Melita Easters, I really enjoyed having you here. I mentioned Michael Thurman partly uh, because he'll be here tomorrow. Oh. Uh, with uh, Sam Olins and Jim Galloway and uh, Robert Costa of Washington Week and Washington Post is going to join us for a segment of the show. It'll be interesting to hear his take on how these Senate races are being interpreted up there in uh, Washington, D.C. Uh, so thank you all for being with us for Political Rewind today. I'm Bill Nygut. We'll see you tomorrow.